On a couple of occasions, I've read a paragraph to you. It's actually a paragraph written by A.W. Tozier years ago. It summarizes what we're going to be speaking this morning. I'm using it also as a paragraph that we've read the past few Sunday nights in a series that we're doing at 6 p.m. entitled Choices. But Tozier wrote, and you've heard this before, a real Christian is an odd number anyway. He feels supreme love for one whom he has never seen talks familiarly every day to someone he cannot see, expects to go to heaven on the virtue of another, empties himself in order to be full, admits he is wrong so he can be declared right, goes down in order to get up, is strongest when he is weakest, richest when he is poorest, happiest when he feels the worst. He dies so he can live, forsakes in order to have, gives away so he can keep, sees the invisible, hears the inaudible, and knows that which passes knowledge. Another writer wrote it this way in an illustration that he used while preaching. What gets your attention, he asks. Do you realize how few people ever really hear the inaudible or how few really see the invisible? And then he goes on with this illustration. A Native American, an American Indian, was walking in downtown New York City alongside a friend who was a resident of the city. Right in the center of Manhattan, the Native American seized his friend's arm and whispered, Wait, I hear a cricket. His friend said, Come on, a cricket? This is downtown New York. No, he persisted. I really do. It's impossible, was the response of his friend. You can't hear a cricket. Listen, the horns are honking, people are screaming, brakes screeching. Both sides of the street are just packed with people. Subways are right below us. You can't possibly hear a cricket, his friend protested. The Indian insisted, no, wait a minute. And he led his friend along slowly. They stopped. The Native American walked down to the end of the block, went across the street, looked around. He cocked his head to one side, but he couldn't find it went across another street, and there in one of those large cement planters where a tree was growing, he dug into the mulch and found the cricket. See, he yelled as he held up the insect high above his head. His friend walked across the street marveling, how in the world could it be that you heard a cricket in the middle of Manhattan? And the Indian answered, well, my ears are different from yours. It simply depends on what you're listening to. Here, let me show you. And he reached into his pocket, pulled out a handful of change, a couple of quarters, three or four nickels, some dimes and some pennies. Then he said, watch. And he held the coins waist high, dropped them on the sidewalk, and every head within a block turned around and looked in the direction of the Indian. It all depends on what you're listening for, isn't it? This morning, if you'd look with me, please, in the book of Hebrews, I want to focus on one individual We're going to focus on a character, and if you were a recipient of this letter when it was written, and do you remember what Hebrews was written for? For just a moment, let's put this passage in context. We're going to be looking at verses 5 and 6. This letter was written, the book of Hebrews, as it says, to people who come from a Jewish background. They had been newly saved, most of these Hebrew believers had come to Christ recently, but in the culture and the world in which they lived as Jews, in turning away from Judaism and receiving 
Jesus Christ as their Savior, life got tough. Many of them lost their jobs. Many of them found themselves as outcasts among family, among friends. And a lot of them as a result now of becoming what Hebrews writes, gazing stocks. People now looking at them as odd, had deserted the faith. These new believers in this first century were thinking now of going back to Judaism. And the writer of Hebrews writes to encourage them to press on to live by faith. The faith that was once delivered to you by God through the prophets and now in these latter days you have heard of through Jesus Christ. And over 20 different comparisons or titles are made of Christ, how he is better than anything that was ever offered under Judaism. As a matter of fact, it all pointed toward him. Don't quit. Don't draw back. Keep on keeping on in the midst of difficulties, trials, or discouragements. Keep on. Do not grow weary. And then the writer talks about and encourages them by folks who lived in the past, who pressed on in difficult times. They walked by what? Faith. They walked by faith. They were a people of faith. This whole Christian life is lived by what? Faith. And faithful believers of old lived by faith. Now, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that talks about an individual who walked by faith. And as we look at this man named Enoch, and by the way, we're going to be looking at two passages of Scripture. They flow together as one unit. Because keep in mind now, as we said, this was written to people who come from a Jewish background. Many of them had much of the Old Testament committed to memory. So when they would hear just a sentence or two that we find written here, their mind immediately went back to the whole episode found in the Old Testament. They knew the story. And as we talk about faith and we read this, we're going to begin our passage with verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval." Verse 5, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God took him up, for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. As you look in this passage of Scripture, we're going to be talking about pleasing the Lord this morning, and that's what that sheet has that we've given you. What does it take for us to please God? Enoch's going to serve as an example of living by faith because he had, it says in verse 5, he had this testimony or this witness. This is what people thought when they saw Enoch or listened to him. This man pleases God. You know what? Oftentimes we think that if we would have lived in the Old Testament time or these Old Testament believers had it made. I mean, getting up in the morning, it would have been so different than for you and me. You and I get up and we venture into a living room or a study or in a car or somewhere sitting down behind a desk and we open up the Word of God, we read it, and we're challenged by it, and then that will sustain us through the day. But we haven't seen Christ. We read about Him. 
haven't seen God. If we'd have lived in the Old Testament times, it would have been easier. We could have seen him and seen him manifest his power. Folks, Enoch never saw God. That's what we're going to be talking about this morning. The Old Testament people like Abraham would have heard from God. God would say, leave Ur the Chaldees, and he would hear from him again 15 years later. Now that's faith, isn't it? You heard a promise, now live with that for 15 years. Go on that again for another 20. You and I have it made on this side of the cross. We have 66 more books than they had. We have an indwelling Holy Spirit. And yet it says of Enoch that he pleased God. What does it take to please God? What did he possess? What do we need? Notice on the sheet, and if you'll fill this in as we go on. As you seek to please God, what did he do? What does it take? What did Enoch do that serves as an example to you and me? I want you to notice in verses 5 and 6 of Hebrews, first of all, his faith in God. His faith in God. As I mentioned a moment ago, and by the way, if you ask someone to quote Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, most, and, and it, from a one is on, young people can quote it, and we can. And probably most of us could say it. Let's say it aloud together. Hebrews eleven six. Without faith it is what? Possible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that seek him. Okay? Most everyone in here could quote that verse, or just with a little bit of refresher, you remember the verse. How about quoting verse 5? By faith, Enoch. Well, for most of us, we can't quote it. But did you notice something in this passage of Scripture? Those two verses go together. For most of us, as we memorize Hebrews eleven six, we strip it from its context and remember that half of it. Verse 6 is actually a commentary on Enoch and the rest of those who faithfully walked with God. But verse 6 comments on Enoch, what he did that pleased God. Or what he did, and it says he had this testimony that he pleased God. For without faith, it is impossible to please him. He that cometh to God must believe that he is. So as you look on the sheet this morning, by faith, Enoch believed that, first of all, God is, and I'll make this very simple, God is there. God is there. Or, if you want to put in parentheses, he exists. Now, we live in a day, there's a growing movement today called neo-atheism. All around us, it has become more vogue the last three years than it was perhaps in the last two decades to question the very existence of God. But Enoch would be a challenge to us. He believed that God is there. He exists. And as a result of that, it says in verse 6, must believe that he is. Therefore, because he is there, he exists, I can come to him. It speaks of an absolute humble dependence on God. But more than that, I believe he is there. I don't doubt or question or wonder if he's there. I know even though I don't see it. One writer writes this and says this about this drawing near and proving God. 
the idea. Let me just read from F.F. Bruce. Belief in the invisible spirit, spiritual order involves first and foremost belief in a God who is king of the ages, immortal, invisible, and the only God, quoting 1 Timothy 1.17. And belief in God carries with it necessarily belief in his word. It is not a belief in the existence of a God that is meant, but belief in the existence of the of the God, the one who was declared by the fathers through the prophets and in these last days spoken of through the Son. The Jewish Christians in that day lived in a culture where no one questioned the existence of God. We live in a day, though, when people do, but at this point, Enoch took God at the fact that there is a God. I believe there is a God, and not only do I believe that there is a God, but he is not only there, he is trustworthy, and I'll stake my life. He is a rewarder of them that seek him. Let me just read an illustration that helps us illustrate. I'm reading from a book. If you could ask God just one question, and if you haven't noticed in Christian bookstores lately, there are a plethora of books being written. For instance, Tim Keller's The Reason for God. If you haven't picked it up, you ought to buy it and read it, answering many of the questions in a narcissistic, pluralistic, postmodern, and a post-postmodern culture that deals with the idea questioning the reality of God. And he then wrestles with it and helps us deal with the arguments people pose to us. Is there really a God, and how can I know? How can a good God allow suffering and evil in this world? How can we be sure that one religion, what we teach, is true in the many in the world. And he answers question upon question like that in the book entitled The Reason for God. You don't have to go into a Christian bookstore. You can pick it up at Borders or Barnes & Noble. It won the 2008 Book of the Year Award. Very helpful reading. And with that and many others, our book's out. And this one here is entitled If You Could Ask God One Question. And the question is this. If you're really there, God, why on earth don't you prove it? Listen to what the writer says. And he starts with this illustration. This morning, boys and girls, we're going to do some painting. You can paint anything you like, and if you don't know what to paint, just paint what you did at the weekend. So the primary school teacher watched as the children got their plastic aprons on, started to paint enthusiastically. After a while, the teacher walked around the room to see how they were getting on. Some were painting mom and dad in the park this past weekend. Others were painting the seaside, and some were painting the animals they had seen at the zoo. Eventually, the teacher stopped at a particularly shapeless and colorful painting. That's very nice, Scott, she said encouragingly. What is it? Oh, that's God, said Scott. The teacher said, but no one's ever seen God. Scott looked up at her. They have now. Okay. (laughs) The writer says, it's not only small children who paint pictures of God. Think of the thousands of different people who've been doing just the same thing since the dawn of time. There have been gods in the shape of animals, gods in the shape of fire, gods of the stars and the sun, distant gods, inner gods, benign gods, and fearsome gods. Then he goes on to say, Steve joined the staff of the newspaper I worked for. And we used to walk and talk through our lunch hours. Sometimes we'd talk about the important things in life. And then when we stopped talking about football, the conversation sometimes turned to God. Listen, he said, I'd believe in God if he were to come and stand in front of me. 
If I could meet him and talk to him and touch him, if only I could see him, that would prove his existence, then I would be convinced. I sat there silently evaluating the odds of God suddenly appearing in the Bedfordshire Times cafeteria. And he says, to be fair, there were a brief visit from the mayor recently, but after he sampled the Spanish omelet, I don't think he'd be returning in a hurry. But just imagine, imagine what it would be like to physically meet God, to actually see him, talk to him, touch him, and to sit down and eat with God. Philip was another man with a similar request of Steve's. I've never met Philip personally, but you can read about him in the Bible. He said to a man called Jesus, show me, God, that's all I need. And Jesus seemed surprised that Philip would ask such a thing. Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been with you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the what? This writer says, Jesus was saying, once you've seen me, all the questions, all the guessing game, all the bets are off about what God is like. And actually, although my friend Steve can't physically touch God or see him or eat with him, there were thousands of people who did just that. Many of them, wanting to keep a record of these extraordinary events, made sure to write down what happened so that people like Steve, people like you, people like me, could know for certain that, yes, God does exist. God exists, and we should know, because he has been here and we met him. Someone says, did Jesus actually claim to be God? Repeatedly. He says, for instance, I and the Father are, if you have seen me, you have seen God. God has been here. Enoch, you, me, please, God, by our faith in God, believing that he is there, believing that he is trustworthy, he exists. But not only that, go on in this passage with me. And for a moment, would you keep your fingers in Hebrews, but turn back to the parallel passage in Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5 this morning is the parallel that we need to look at. This passage complements or fills out for us what Hebrews and the readers there understood when they read or we're hearing that letter read in their presence about how they ought to continue on. And when you think about someone pleasing God, delighting God, Enoch is described that way. And it says in Genesis chapter 5, verse 21, And Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took him. As you read this passage of Scripture, we're going to see not only his faith in God, but we see his fellowship with God. And it's described in that experience in Genesis 5 that he walked with God in verse 20 and again in verse 24. When you think of someone walking with God, and the idea is this, you think of walking close together with an arm around them, and you're in close fellowship. That's exactly the picture that is painted here in words for you and me. Thinking of togetherness, fellowship, is that what is to be our visual, our image, our mental picture? What does it mean when we ask the expression then fellowshipping with God? Well, in order to answer that, notice on the sheet, we are going to ask a couple of questions. Then we're going to make a lesson with some more questions in it. What does it mean to walk with God? First of all, only two men 
in all the word of God are said to have walked with God. One is Enoch and the other is Noah in Genesis chapter 6 verse 9. Now Abraham talks about, we'll talk about how he would fellowship with God, but the only other person that is ever said to have walked besides these two was Adam. Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden, but that was pre-fall. Once sin entered the world, you'll only see two others described that way. Now let me go on a little bit further with the B on the sheet here, a small letter B, and give you something to write in here. This is very important. As you take this passage and you translate it out of Hebrew and put it into English in Genesis chapter 5, to walk with God is distinguished from the prepositional phrases to walk before God or to walk after God. Enoch is described as walking with God. If we were to look up, for instance, to walk before God, Genesis 17, 1, Abraham walked before God, he is commanded. Or in Genesis 24, 40. Or if we were to look up to walk after God, the command given to the people in Deuteronomy 13, verse 4. Both of the phrases, to walk before God or to walk after God, are used to indicate a pious, moral, blameless life in obedience to divine commands. Obey me, God says. The way you conduct your life. This is different, which takes me to that third point. The closest, and what we're talking about to walk with God, speaks about the closest possible communication. It's walking, as it were, by the side of God. It's walking, as it were, with your closest friend. And picture it. By the way, in order to do so, what does it take? And what does it mean? And what happens And what has to all take place to walk with someone in friendship? Well, first of all, you have to be in full agreement with each other. Amos 3, 3, two cannot walk together. In other words, unless you be in agreement, in harmony. You have to have corresponding natures. You think alike, be alike, have some of the same ideas. You have to be in full communication where you communicate everything. In his book, by the way, on levels of communication, on communication, a writer by the name of John Powell says that, do you realize when you and I talk with each other, there are actually five levels of communication? He says this, the first one, and let's, let's do this for a moment, let's go deep, deeper when we talk with each other and communicate. He says level one is what we call cliches, or he calls it verbal algebra, or the exchanges of symbolic talk, and it sounds like this. How are you? I'm fine. Super. And then Powell writes, it means nothing. You meant nothing. You can say it to anyone because it's meaningless. It's just noise or a cliche. But there's a deeper level he calls, it's level two, facts and reports. And this is the exchange of information. In other words, the weather, who won the game, or you talk about finances, or the colors to paint the house, what time to pick up the kids, where to eat dinner. He says, most people live on this level. Cliches, facts and reports. Third level, 
opinions and judgments. Powell writes, now we're getting below the surface. We're opening up convictions. We say things like, I like that. I don't like that. He says it's rarely encountered in the average conversation. People on this level begin to frighten us because they appear candid. Clichés, facts and reports, opinions and judgments. The fourth level is deeper. He calls it feelings. Masks, he says, are peeled off. The truth is beginning to be known. Tears can be shed. The typical statements concerning the level of feelings are, that really frightened me. I feel close to you. I'm troubled by something you said to me a while ago. Or something like, you intimidate me, or you make me feel very secure, or I hurt inside. Feelings. Clichés, facts and reports, opinions and judgments, feelings. Level five, he calls it maximum truth. He says this is best, but so rare. Very few ever reach this level here at church or at home. He says, this takes the most amount of maturity. Here is where you speak about dreams, secrets, where you get involved in confession and admissions of cynicism or disillusionment and doubt. You can feel safe in giving a rebuke or an affirmation. The truth can be spoken and respected. It frequently includes hugs, embraces with no sexual connotation whatsoever. This is Ephesians 4.15 speaking the truth in love, in verse 25. This is also where Jeremiah would say to God in prayer, you deceived me. Or Moses would pray and say, if you won't save them, let me die. And you talk to God that way, Paul writes. Enoch walked with God, and as he walked with him, and as he talked with him in prayer, the way you would a close friend, that's how he probably talked with God. Do we? Under this point, the closest possible communication to be pleasing the other person, only friends who walk together constantly find themselves doing that. By the way, the Old Testament when it was translated into the tongue that the people were speaking just before the time of Christ, was translated from Hebrew into Greek. And that Old Testament version became known as the what? The Septuagint. And the Septuagint, when it took this passage out of Genesis and translated it, it, this expression, walking with God, It used a Greek word, euorestio, that later became translated in the New Testament, pleasing, delightful. And it became the word then that the Holy Spirit would use in the life of the writer in the book of Hebrews. That he had this testimony that he pleased God. And that was carried into Hebrews 11.5. The idea is that Enoch's walk with God made God happy. It pleased him. God enjoyed it. So that when people 
even when God later in his mind reminisced the centuries after. Let me give you an example, he would say to the writer of Hebrews, of one that I enjoyed. It would be Enoch. Why? Because of the way we walked together. That's encouraging to me that not only does God love us, but that he likes us. It pleased him. God actually likes us. So what does it mean to walk with God? It obviously is something very different than walking before God, walking after him. It actually speaks of a close, intimate time spent in communication with him. And by the way, you'll only do that if you believe God is what? There. Okay? He is there. And that he not only enjoys this, but he rewards that. Let me ask a second question here on that sheet. What about Enoch's walk with God? What about it? We have to just, as we look at that sheet, what about that walk with God? Let me give you a couple of points here about this walk with God. And one of the commentators, W.H. Griffith Thomas, says this about this. There is a simplicity about the record in Genesis 5, perhaps indicative of the quiet, simple religion that characterized Enoch. It was simple. It was no secret. So let's ask a couple of things. What do we mean by this walking with God? What about it? Notice, first of all, the commencement. Verse 22, the commencement. Then Enoch, it says in verse 22, when he was 65 years old, he became the father of Methuselah. Then he walked with God 300 years. If you take verse 22 quite literally, It says, then he begat sons and daughters. Some scholars think something happened around the time of the birth of that son. You heard Brad Harbaugh, Pastor Harbaugh this morning, talk about now that his youngest, his daughter, is driving. It does change his prayer life again, doesn't it? All right? But maybe something happened. Something took place in his life when that son was born. It's interesting that he named that son Methuselah. Now, not a whole lot of us name our kids that. I don't know if you would break it down and nickname him Matt or whatever it is, but he called him Methuselah. What does the Hebrew word Methuselah mean? The idea, and it, can, and it means literally either one of two things. One, and we're not really sure because the language that was used back then, it either means man of the spear, or the other interpretation is when he dies, it shall be sent. And I'm convinced of the second, that the Hebrew word Methuselah means, or etymologically it means, when he dies, it will be sent. What's he talking about? The flood. And so Enoch had received something because what did Enoch do? What was he? If you read Jude 14 and 15, he was a preacher in his day. He preached righteousness, it says, to an ungodly generation. So in the day in which he lived, he was a preacher speaking for God. And he obviously then talked about there's an event coming. And he took God at his word. The truth is, folks, we don't know for sure, but we know it lasted 300 years. Let's go on a little bit further on that sheet. What about the character of his walk with God? Not only the commencement, but what about the character? What was it like? How did he fellowship with God? And that's actually what I'm interested in. 
And I'm preaching this because I want to know, I want to do that. I want that testimony. You want that testimony. I want to hear from God. I want to know in the heart of God that Dave Burgraff, that you, that me, and our daily life, we are pleasing God. Amen? That's it. Is God pleased? Not only in what I do for him, but is he pleased with me? If I can put it this way, does God like you? Does he like me? Do we please him? Enoch did. So what about the character of that walk with God? His walk, folks, his walk, his fellowship with God was not something mystical. It was not something supernatural. There was no strange, unusual experience so as to preclude an effective family life. He's a dad. He has children. He has a job. There was nothing about that walk with God that kept him from giving vocal opposition to wickedness. He lived and worked on earth the way other men did. And then one day God caught him up, it says, took him. Enoch, folks, catch this. He never saw God his entire life. That's why he's used as an example of walking by faith. For we walk by faith, not by sight. And he's used as an example of faith. He never saw him. He just believed God is there. And that's the reason he's an example. Enoch's walk was simply close fellowship with God in prayer and obedience to his word. And I believe sometimes the reason that it's so odd for me is we read that and when wonder about it because something had to be more mystical is because we may not walk in that close of fellowship. We can't quite relate to that kind of deep belief. We ought to. We should. What about the culmination or the climax of that walk with God? Simply says here in Genesis 5:24, he was not. God took him. He was not. The idea then is simply if you look in the Chaldean version it says here, he appeared not, yet God killed him not. In other words, he was taken alive to heaven. I'm going to close out with something and that is in the lessons here. How can we walk with God, folks? How do we do that? Or can we? Is it possible in New Testament times to do what Enoch did? Sure is. He's an ordinary father, an extraordinary believer, though. We can even go beyond Enoch. Listen to what the New Testament says. There are more prepositions, as it were, to describe our walk with God. For instance, in Galatians 5.16, Walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Galatians 5.25, If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Colossians 2, 6, as you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. Revelation 3, 4, they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. How do we do it? Walking by faith, not by sight. Can I use an illustration and close with this? I have to use a family illustration if you'll beg me and put up with that. Um, I have three sons, my oldest son, who's now a college teacher, uh, got saved when Lucy and I were married and had been married about four years. God blessed us by bringing him into our life. 
And this little young man, his name is Phil, and as Philip was growing up, uh, for whatever reason, at a very young age, he, he received Christ as Savior. And many of you have experienced that in your homes. Uh, he loved sports. He was just a, a, seemed like a happy little kid. And when he went off to school, and I was to be about kindergarten time as he headed off to school, he would get in trouble because he talked all the time in class, okay? And uh, so we would get these notes from home. Philip got, had to sit in the corner again today or had some, been some time, uh, couldn't go out to recess. He was constantly talking. But he also had a real interest in things about God, so he um, just always turned, prayed a lot about matters. Our youngest son, Nathan, on Philip's birthday, March 1st, Philip was seven years old. Lucy's water broke. I took her to the hospital, and they delivered Nathan. They were both born on the same day. So I walked into school, got Philip out of class, uh, and said to him, Phil, you got a great birthday gift today. Um, Nathan was born on your birthday. Are you surprised? He said, no, I, I asked Jesus today to give me him as a birthday gift. And so and he turned around and went right back to class. I wasn't even done talking to him. Okay. <laughs> Let's forward time a little bit. We moved to Minnesota, and uh, his fifth grade teacher's name was Larry. And um, Larry came to my class one, or up to my office one day, and uh, Philip had gotten in trouble a couple of times through first, second, third, fourth, and fifth grade because he talked in class. And uh, uh, his teacher, Larry, came to me and said, I figured out what he's doing. He's talking all the time. Do you know what he's doing? Yeah, he talks out loud to God. This went on through junior high, went on through high school. My oldest son is an athlete. He's a pretty tall kid. He's about six foot one. And, and um, uh, when he was in high school, he was very good in athletics, and he was a point guard in basketball. And, and so they would, uh, um, you would see him out a shortstop for the team. He'd be walking around, and he'd have his glove, and he's walking between, and he's calling plays in, in baseball. And what he's, if somebody's on base, and he's calling on how we're going to do the defense. And, but he's also talking, and, he's, and his teammates knew that this kid is praying out loud, Okay. Um, You'd see him step up to the free throw line, but before when the coach would call everybody off to the side, he's standing there maybe in the free throw line, but he's, he's praying. And, and I remember one time they got the whole team together off to the, uh, to the side, and the coach, in a very tight game, gathered everybody. And as he's talking to them, and then for a moment, Phil's walking around the rest of the teammates, and I'm sitting in the bleachers next to a friend of mine named Brett, and Lucy and I are there. And Brett says, what is he doing, Dave? I see that several times when he's out on the diamond, or he's here. He's He's walking around. What's he, what's he talk to himself for all the time? And I said, well, he's praying, actually. So Lucy and I decided he, he's heading off to college next year. Um, we need to sit down with him. So his senior year of high school, we sat Philip down and explained to him. He knew, but I said, son, um, I really, really appreciate your prayer life. But you don't have to be praying out loud, talking, and in the presence of everybody, in restaurants and what, just 
talking out loud. You can pray something more silent yourself. Sometimes I didn't want him to be embarrassed. The years have gone by and numerous times Lucy and I have said we should have never had that conversation. How many people do you know are sitting behind the wheel of their car, walking through this church, walking through a school, behind a desk in an office, just talking out loud to God because they believe he is there? Would to God all of us talk to God as if he was there? Hey, by the way, folks, he is. That's how we should live. Amen. And when we do, it pleases him. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for the time this morning in the word of God. Help us to live this life pleasing to you. Perhaps no more Pleasing to you is the fact that we walk through this life talking, expressing, manifesting the fact that we believe God is right there, ready to meet our every need, to guide us, to lead us. I just thank you, Lord, for the challenge Enoch is to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray.